episode one of the Chronic Media Consumption Podcast. I'm Kelly. And I'm Michelle. Today we are going to be talking about the use of color in film to tell stories. You guys have probably noticed this in films uh, throughout, sometimes subconsciously, but it affects the way you consume something, the emotions that are evoked. And we have a few really cool examples we wanted to kind of dissect on this session. Yeah, indeed. It, it, it works with psychology. It works with emotion. It works on so many different levels, including the historical interpretation of those colors as well. The 2002 Jet Li film Hero, it's, oh gosh, it's just beautiful just thinking about it. <laughs> like, ah. um, it is so, definitely an iconic film too, just from the, the visual aspects, yeah. I mean, the way that they use the color of the set, the lighting, the costumes to tell the various versions of the story and there's a scene that is one of the most powerful um, where one of the individuals is injured and dying and they're in a collection of yellow leaves and it all turns to red. It's just, oh, so powerful. And I mean, within this being part of the culture in China, the meaning of colors is a little different. And so, you know, like red is fire, good fortune, joy. It's often utilized in wedding garb for them and is also blood and power. So, you know, that's it's carrying many different hats or, or roles in this film. Um, and I don't know how, how deep do we want to dissect into this? Cause I could well, go scene by scene. That's a little much. <laughs> that is a little much for, for a podcast. We don't want the podcast to last four hours, but like, I agree that the color red, um, for that culture is symbolic of so many different things, but all of them, I think boil down to, um, like just passion and energy. Like mm -hmm. good fortune and uh, love and blood, all of that just kind of boiled down into like just just energy in itself, the energetic um, either acceptance or energetic release, which is really, really fascinating to how it's used in that film. Yeah. And, you know, one of the other versions they had, which was typically viewed as the the calmer uh, interpretation of one of the stories had a lot of blues and greens and that made sense because that's harmony health prosperity it's generally viewed as the the heavens uh water air and you know in contrast to the fire that you get with red and was reflective of the calmer interpretation of the story but also lacked a lot of passion they had misunderstandings, miscommunication. Um, and one of the things that sometimes is shown is in Chinese culture that I learned was that green can sometimes be associated with infidelity. Mm -hmm. And that layered another depth to that particular version because they had that infidelity with the, uh, the apprentice who actually based on what we gather from the rest of the story, that was all just a smokescreen. But 
you don't really get that. And it just adds that extra punch that somebody from the Western culture looking in maybe doesn't catch how that is being portrayed through literally the, the set dressing and the clothing. Which is actually something interesting because if green represents infidelity, in my knowledge of the Western culture, green is envy. Jealousy. Yeah, it can be. So that does fold into um, the infidelity idea as well. That's actually a fantastic use of of those colors because this movie was intended for an Asian audience, but mm-hmm. had become so widespread and became such a global phenomenon, especially in America, where it was just like everyone looked at that and said, the visuals are amazing. We have to see this. Um, <laughs> that it, it even transcends some of the cultural boundaries that there are because those colors are, they're everywhere. I like the, the idea that the blue and green, they deal with nature. Red, which is typically a, uh, uh, the color of fire, um, is natural, but it also destroys nature. Yeah, it's destruction and renewal. Exactly. So it like the forest fires and things like that, but also just a destructive fire. Like forest fires are needed to destroy the old, but also make way for the new, while mm-hmm. there's also just fire for the sake of fire. And I, that's it's something that can be, we could delve into this on so many levels and just analyze this to death. But that is one of the biggest biggest and most really overt uses of color in film and storytelling that I think we have to date. I, I agree. And I mean, the the way this whole show just, they, they tied things up with how you could interpret as the truth, you know, cause there would have been many versions of the story, many interpretations. And when they get to the one where everything is in wearing white you're like, okay, this is the truth. This is pure, unadulterated. This is what it is. But you also take into account what we were mentioning earlier in that white is often utilized for mourning, death, mm-hmm. funerals in the Chinese culture. So they would typically only wear those if they were mourning for someone who was dead. So you take into that account that maybe it's not that they were giving you the pure truth, but that they were mourning the true story or a loss of something they were acknowledging and uh, saying goodbye to what could have been possibly the loss of, of their innocence. It's been a long time since Mm -hmm. I've seen this film, so I don't really remember a lot of it, but like, yeah, the, the mourning, the loss of their innocence, mourning the loss of, the purity of something that they want of their had. mission, yeah, their mission to prevent them from combining all of China into one thing, because that whole thing was about fighting against this the the emperor who and general who basically viewed this as his mission to improve things, and he's like, this order is going to help everybody, and it's homogenizing things, and by it all being white. They've washed out all of the color, all of the uniqueness that came from the various cultures that were represented by these great warriors. All of the variety that comes with the existence of the human people. Exactly. Like, oh, that, right? That's right. Yeah. It's like 
seeing a film uh, as a youth and going, oh, that's really pretty, and then getting much older and watching it and going, oh my god, that actually means this? Oh no. <laughs> it's it's so cool seeing how things like that affect you from generation to generation. And this movie, I hope, will last forever in in our zeitgeist because that is it's such an iconic there's so so many iconic images from that film that just evoke so many different emotions so many memories so many different things within each person that it's just it's so powerful and i want that to be known forever i want this to be taught in film i i literally want this to be taught and this actually came out during yeah, I was in I was in college at the time, so I I could they could have chosen to do this in one of my film courses. They did not because they were obsessed with Hitchcock westerns and um, Paul Verhoeven for some reason. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's really really interesting. I think it's a great great film, and from what I remember of it, <laughs> but taking from that. Um, the color palette for certain stories is actually very, very important. I'm actually going to be foray to, I can't talk. I'm going to be sliding into the movie Amelie from 2001, just the year prior to uh, when Hero was released. Amelie is a French film that has a very, very uh, specific, very saturated look. It is, um almost entirely shot in in the green yellow color palette where basically everything is like this this almost not really sickly but kind of a natural green yellow in the background with um bright pops of bright red and bright blue the blue i find out from watching some some little behind the scenes vignettes the blue was almost always digitally added in after the fact to help balance the the frame that was shown in each scene because if everything is green yellow with a little bit of red it kind of starts to feel sickly and we didn't yeah, want that it blends it together too much exactly but for this film red is used very frequently in the characterizations of the individual main characters as well as the situations that are happening throughout red is used to embody um, passion mystery uh, adventure love sex it's it's really interesting how it is used there are scenes the two the two main characters amelie and nino amelie is the one that we follow throughout the most the majority of the film she is She's driven by her passion for life, but also held back in a way. Mostly she's held back because of the fact that when she was very, very young, she was kind of neglected as a child. Um, and every time her father, who was a physician, would take, would listen to her heart, just that little bit of human contact would make her pulse, her heart race. And he thought that she had a heart condition. So he sheltered her and kept her safe, especially after the death of his wife. So her being that that sheltered person, but also viewing everything with this passion, this knowledge for 
wanting the adventure, wanting somebody to connect to is shown through this red color. Yeah, um, she always has that zeal for life. Exactly. When she skips stones on the Seine, when she um, when she starts doing her little manipulations of the two people in the cafe that she works in, um, and the two of them end up having a wild, sexy time in the bathroom. Um, red is featured very predominantly during that sec- that scene as well. For Nino, red is a little bit different for him. He works in a sex shop. Red is everywhere in the sex shop because of yeah, course it's over, it is. It's oversaturated, yeah. Um, but I believe, if I recall correctly, the red is also used in his um, his photo journals that he keeps. That's the cover of his photo journals um, are bright red, and he goes through and he's taking the the discarded photos from photo booths. That's a little thing that he collects, which is fun because why he just takes people's discarded photos whether they didn't like them because their eyes were closed or they were blurred or something but he sees this one person this bald man everywhere he goes and he's like who is this person this is something that's that's driving a mystery for him the bald man who you later spoilers discover is a photo booth technician mm-hmm. he's there to fix the photo booths has bright red shoes he is the driving factor for Nino's mystery, his his want to solve this random mystery, just to answer that question. Who is this guy? Why do I see him everywhere? Is he a ghost? And I love that. Um, that movie is so quirky and so fun. It I believe that it's the origination of the roaming gnome used for Travelocity, because Amelie's father has a a gnome that her mother hated that he uses to top off this little shrine to her, which I think is hilarious and also a little bit uh, maniacal. <laughs> um, but he never goes anywhere. He he talks about doing all of these things, but he never does. So she goes in, Amelie goes in and mm-hmm. takes the gnome, gives it to her stewardess friend and says, Hey, whatever countries and places that you go to, can you take pictures of him at famous places and send them back to me? And she's like, yeah, sure, why not? All of, This is totally perfect repayment for watching my cat while I'm gone. <laughs> yeah, totally makes sense. So her father keeps getting these postcards of this gnome, his gnome, in front of, like, Red Square. Or, like, in front of Big Ben. Or the Taj Mahal. And the red, the iconic red of the gnome's hat is in every single picture. And that represents the father's need for adventure, the need to go out and explore things and not just stay inside. And I just thought that was such a cool little, little thing that represents so many different things for each character. They did such a good job of telling the story with Through the Color. I think the first time I watched Amelie, I don't remember absorbing the story because i was just so distracted by how beautiful it was mm, and i loved and the music too the the, the yes. accordion music was just so beautiful yes i and have it, to tune in my head now <laughs> it really set the tone 
And, you know, every scene they did, you could absolutely tell that they thought about the perspective and the cinematography and, you know, somebody moving away from the camera, what's going to be seen in this frame and what do we need to include? What things need to make sure we prune it out? Uh, it, It felt like everything was very intentional, leading you towards those stories of discovery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's 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 really cool that there are so many different storytellers, so many different directors, cinematographers, writers that put these ideas down on paper and then go to film them and pull out so much more than the casual observer would recognize. Yeah. I love I love that those are like little driving forces. Absolutely. Because like one of the things that comes in with this is sometimes it's intentional, but sometimes it's also a time and money saving shortcut that mm-hmm. we we give meaning to as the viewer, as the audience. We're like, oh, they did that. Like as your English teacher would say, the meaning behind the blue door is that they were depressed. You're like, no, they just liked blue. So, yeah. <laughs> As a writer, believe me, I was always very annoyed at my English teachers for going, what is the meaning of this particular usage of this word? And I'm like, it sounded nice. Yep, exactly. <laughs> and they're like, no, you have to de- dig deeper. And I looked at them and was like, I write. I write all the time. I use a word because it sounds right in that sentence. It has no other meaning than the literal definition for that word. <laughs> <laughs> I I think it's... It's so funny how we can take different things from media and you, you can watch it at different levels. Sometimes you're watching it and you're just like, I just want to veg out, enjoy the pretty pictures. You know, yeah. sometimes you want to focus on certain things. Um, sometimes you don't want to listen to the moral of the story. I mean, with uh, speaking about color and movies and morals of the story, I think of two films in particular. Uh, so like the classic, you know, 1939 Wizard of Oz and how she was in this mystical land of Oz and all of a sudden everything was in color. You know, she had the ruby slippers and the um, yellow brick road, all of these things that were so foreign and psychedelic. For, bright technicolor. Yeah, yeah, bright technicolor compared to her humdrum world. But you get to the point where she just wants to go back to that because she appreciates it. It's, it's overwhelming when it's something that's so foreign and the whole experience is something that builds and builds and builds of, of being colorful and, and musical and loud and very different from her regular life. And that also is like the uh, film, Pleasantville, um, 1998, Tobey Maguire, uh, Reese Witherspoon. Reese Witherspoon. Yes, yeah. thank you. I was going to say Kirsten Dunst. I'm like, that's wrong. <laughs> that's Spider-Man. <laughs> and uh, no. William H. Macy and Jeff, um, uh, Jeff, oh, Daniels. My brain was like, Jeff Goldblum. I'm like, nope, not him. Jeff Daniels. Wrong. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I'm pretty sure the um oh what's his name the guy from fast and the furious that passed away brian oh yes um no you're talking about um now why is this hold on i've got (laughs) his name is in my head and it's just behind a brick wall um paul walker 
Paul Walker. Walker. That's yeah. the one. That's the one. Yes. So yeah. they're all they're all in that film. And um, if you don't know the premise, I'll I'll do a quick little summary of uh, basically this kid is got nostalgia for a 1940s 1950s style black and white. TV show called Pleasantville where everything is perfect and everything is pleasant. Very um, leave it to beaver and in, in definitely a an era that he never lived through. Correct. Yeah, it's the nostalgia which is never really reflective of real life. I mm-hmm. mean like the Gomer Pyle kind of stuff like that that none of that actually was the day to day, but people like to gloss over reality and be like, "Well, I like this little fantasy version of the world where everything is all homogenized." It never was like that, but that's how a, a movie set was. And so he has the opportunity to actually dive into that and him and his sister go through the experience. But they realize that what makes life interesting and worth living for them is the passion and the the, the mistakes you can make, those crazy decisions that can be uh, made. And it slowly starts infecting Pleasantville and just turning people to color from their black and white humdrum life. And that is such a interesting juxtaposition from where Wizard of Oz, they're basically like, hey, you should be happy with what you have. It gets overwhelming if it's too colorful versus, you know, just 30, uh, 60 years later, (laughs) 60 years later, uh, math, it's (laughs) fine. 60 years later, they're talking about it in the opposite, where it's like, you shouldn't have that nostalgia and be content with how things are. You should be passionate. Go after the things you love. Um, you know, Make out with somebody at Lover's Lane. Do that painting. Eat that amazing food. Get out of that loveless marriage. Like, Be authentic and joyful. And it's so interesting how different the 1930s version to the 1990s version is in representing these characters and how the emotion reaction to color versus black and white is and how they, they completely uh, skew. And I, I don't know how somebody who was initially watching the Wizard of Oz and was in the 1990s, sorry, 1930s, saw the Pleasantville story. I don't know how they would interpret it because they wouldn't have the context that we have. Right. And there are so many different layers to Pleasantville alone that can be interpreted. Like when mm-hmm. I when I was watching that when it first came out, which was, oh God, 1998? Ooh, yes, correct. Um, so when I was first watching that, especially when they had the signs in the window saying no coloreds allowed, mm-hmm. like my brain was like, oh, obvious ties to racial inequality in the 50s. Um, uh, duh, duh, duh. But there's actually so much more involved, especially considering this is a pretty white film. Let's yes. be fair. There's... Uh, is there a single person of color in the entire film? I don't think so. Not probably no named characters. I don't even know if there's any that speak named. I'm not sure that they're even yeah. physically in the background. Um, other than in the very beginning when Toby Maguire and Reese Witherspoon are at like their high school. Um, and it's, it's very clearly this romanticized version that is kind of 
it, the, the I hate to say this, but it's accurate. It's like that white supremacist view of how how America Americana is, and it's never been this ever. The, the quote unquote traditional values of white America. Um, oh, we're getting Ugh. so deep, but yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, like Pleasantville was partially it was an allegory for race relations. Um, in America during the 50s but I think it's it's also so much more than that like what you were mentioning that it's it's the relationship of of wanting to be your true self a lot of these people that start suddenly becoming colorized um are experiencing things that they would not have experienced in their previous black and white lives where um the Tobey Maguire's the mother's character um, where she experiences an orgasm for the first time. For the and, first oh, time. Yeah. She's suddenly in how color. How depressing is that? <laughs> right? Yeah, like, like you how... have two kids. You've been in this marriage for how, who, who knows how long with yeah. teenage kids, and you've never once gotten the O. That is upsetting. Oh, um, and the, the symbolism they had with that, following that, was when the, the tree was the lit tree on fire. And yes. it's like, oh, okay, so this is like the burning bush, the message from God, the, the strike of inspiration. And I think the most interesting part of that, because I mean, for the time being, that was the only color and everyone was like, what the heck is happening? And that's when you realize they can see color as well, um, yeah. but they don't know how to process it, is when the firefighters came. And they're normally like getting a kitten out of a tree. They've yeah. never seen a fire. None of them know, like none of them know how the hoses work. None of them knew any of that stuff. So it's like they had no frame of reference for understanding the the danger. They're just like, we don't even know what this is. So it, it's wonderful, beautiful, and and like mesmerizing, almost seductive. But they have yeah. nothing, no knowledge of. It's also dangerous. If you touch it, it will hurt you. Yeah. And you look at all of the other characters that eventually become colorized in this. I mean, the, we'll just start with the mom again. Um, she experiences an orgasm for the first time and suddenly she is in Technicolor. Mm-hmm. Um, and she immediately goes, what do I do? I'm look at me. I don't know what to do with myself. How do I hide this? She wants to hide herself because she doesn't want to expose her true nature to the rest of the world. And the teenagers are already the ones that are predominantly becoming colorized at this point as well, because Reese Witherspoon gets around in this film. She is Um, teaching, she is teaching them lessons. Honestly, that Paul Walker, when Paul Walker first gets his first orgasm, hello. Uh, (laughs) And then basically lover's lane is the first place that is in full color and that transition of oh, coming the from the black and white and everything. Oh. going down with the cherry blossoms the flowers, almost falling yes. in pink against the black and white background. And then you're suddenly in Lover's Lane and everything is green and blue and pink and red. And it's just so gorgeous. And it's like, this is where you go to be yourself. This is where you go to be free. When the people started reading the books that were blank. Yeah, the stories suddenly started coming to life and then they started gaining knowledge and then they could be themselves like that was such a huge thing it was such a great movie and so important and i think so many people 
lost sight of what it was really about. Yeah. Um, I mean, and I, the great thing about this with Reese Witherspoon's character is she was coming from a perspective of like, oh, this stuff is so stupid. I'm going to do the things I've always done. But she fell in love with herself, with her yeah. mind, with with her ability to to read and go in and just take time to be alone with herself. She was running away so much and really filling a void with other people, which it never works. It never works. Um, And it took her all this time to figure that out. I think that was so interesting where that moment she realizes everyone else is having these experiences for the first time. And she's like, am I broken? And it's literally when she's alone, just finally breathing and in silence that she becomes color. It's literally, it's, it's literally them experiencing um, something that awakens them. It's literally experiencing an awakening, whether that is a sexual awakening, a personal awakening or what have you, that awakening was so well done in, in this film, like for, Tobey Maguire was one of the last people um, of the main cast to become colorized and he doesn't become colorized. He's trying to, to stay in this. He wants everything to stay the way it was because he doesn't leave it to beaver. Mm -hmm. That whole leave it to beaver. Like, no, this is 1950s. Everything's supposed to be black and white. That's the way it is. And he doesn't become colorized until he defends his mother character. Yes. From being attacked and as soon as he throws that first punch, boom, he's in color. Because he's finally, li- I, the way I view it is they're living in the moment. Beforehand, they were just going through the motions. But they, they were following really... the script. Exactly. They were literally following the script. Exactly. And then they finally start living. I the, the soda fountain guy, where he gets into the painting and how he sees the world, that is also the one of the my favorite tools that the filmmakers did because it gives the viewers a lens to look at the world mm-hmm. he he is the person we're looking through this world from because he's the one who's coming from the perspective of Pleasantville not an outsider he is from Pleasantville and it's like through him we're seeing this transformation and his excitement and also unease fear they just wanted to do things as much as they could but they have this innocence that it's new he's he's one of the perfect examples jeff daniels plays the 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 soda shop guy and oh he was the perfect example of all of these different stages um you see these these you see like the mother character terrified of what people are going to think of her um and then kind of becoming herself with jeff daniels as the painter um but early in the film when toby mcguire shows up late to his shift he sees jeff daniels standing there wiping down the counter the same spot that he's been wiping for several minutes now so much that he's rubbed through the color Mm -hmm. the paint on the 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 linoleum or whatever it is on on top of that counter because he's like well you do this and then I do that and then you do this and then I do that and you didn't hear. So I just kept doing this. 
and he's a broken record. He's stuck to the script, but because there's nobody there to enact the progression of the script, he doesn't know what else to do. Yeah. So being exposed to those extra things, those outside things, the paintings, it's it's a really great allegory for exposing yourself to the cultures of the world rather than staying in one place your entire life and experiencing only this small 10 square mile existence and never seeing anything else. Yeah. I mean, I know some people who did not like the film because they viewed it as glorifying this like bygone era that never existed and ignoring the fact that others suffered in that same time period. And I, I can see why they were upset. Like I get that. And it's a very it's valid interpretation, but it's, yeah, it, but it's me, literally showing the progression of coming out of that. Exactly. That's the whole point where it comes from that framework and then shatters it. And if people watch this and do not interpret it that way, I mean, that's, you know, the beauty of media. You can interpret it at different levels, but I truly see it as telling you that's not enough. Like you can't, this thing isn't sustainable. This isn't living. And you need to have that variety, have that passion, live in the moment, experience other things. Don't be fearful. It's so interesting how they had the different, the division of the town. And one part of it was like a little afraid, but mostly excited. This is new. This is amazing. And the other part was just afraid of what was different. And it wasn't until it affected, until it affected them. Yes, exactly. And until it affected them personally, they were like, nope, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be pro this. But then all of a sudden they're like, no, you should give me a chance. You know, that's what we see in, in real life. Now people are like, oh, I don't think that this is good. It's not moral. It's not whatever. But then as soon as it personally affects them, they're like, well, I mean, that's a little different. No, everything was just experience it, go out there and let people live. Yeah. See things, observe things, understand that their life is not affecting yours, Mm -hmm. but can enrich it. Exactly. Oh, that's such a perfect word. Enrich. It's it's such a great, it's a great allegory. I love that movie. Um, Had a great soundtrack too. Holy crap. Um, (laughs) And this actually is a perfect transition into the use of the lack of color to also tell a story, which is where we're transitioning into my film, Psycho. I saw Psycho probably when I was in high school, maybe in passing. Um, Wasn't really a huge fan of Hitchcock um, when I went into college and took a film course specifically on Alfred Alfred Hitchcock. Um, where we go into the films of Vertigo and Psycho and Rear Window, and I don't know why they all end with O, oh, um, Strangers <laughs> on a Train, um, The Lady Vanishes, like the, these these films that spanned several decades, because he was, Alfred Hitchcock was making films starting um, before I think they even made talkies, before they brought sound to film. Um, and he ended up even remaking some of his films for later generations he took um the lady vanishes he made that twice once without sound and once with and then i think um 
the man who knew too much. I think he also made that twice. But Psycho, in particular, was made in 1960. This is very important because at that time, color had already been exposed in film. Mm-hmm. It had almost it, it was starting to become the standard. Yeah, in the 1950s, the late 1950s, film was becoming colorized as a standard practice. So the fact that Alfred Hitchcock, who had made colorized films prior to this, specifically requested from the production company that he make this film in black and white. The fi- production company was fighting against him saying, no, everything's everyone's doing things in color now. You have to do things in color. You're going to lose us money if you make something in boring old black and white. And he fought tooth and nail to get it to be black and white, specifically because of how it would affect the story. And the story, for those of you who don't know, I don't know where you've been living under a rock, whatever. <laughs> this movie's been out for 60 years, my God. Um, the story is about, basically, a woman who is already kind of skirting the line of good and bad at the very beginning of the film, decides to do something fairly, very bad. And runs away from everything. And then while she's in the Bates Motel, she has a change of heart and decides, you know what, I'm going to go back and I'm going to do what's right. But she doesn't have the chance to actually enact that decision because she's brutally murdered. The rest of the film is her sister and I think ex-lover, I don't remember, trying to search for her to find where she went and what happened to her and ending up at that Bates Motel and uncovering all, all of it. That is a very, very brief explanation of what that film is. But overall, the film itself is showing light versus dark as a good versus evil mm-hmm. and the varying shades of gray in between. The use of the light and dark without any color in it is very important for how this story portrays good, evil, and all of those random things in between. The artistry used in this film was oh, just gorgeous. I, I, I really do miss films made for the art of it rather than just foretelling the story. Yeah, because... or just for the money out of the box office. Oh God, for real. <laughs> the the that's why a lot of the a lot of the Netflix shows when they were first starting out, I was watching them going, holy shit, this has been made really, really well and really artistically, and I like the way that they did that. Anyway, for Psycho itself, um, the black and white is very important because so many of the shades of gray are passed over by us, and we think things are just one way or the other, and nothing flows in between. Janet Lee being the character at the beginning who makes these decisions, she is in an illicit affair with somebody in a hotel room at the very first shot of the film. She ends up going to work. She gets the money for the deposit for her company. And instead of going to the bank and depositing that cash, she goes, she buys a car and she drives across country. She wants to escape from it all. She thinks that this is the only way that she can be who she wants to be. And the focus on her, there's a scene where she's driving in complete darkness. It is almost pitch black everywhere around her. You see some cars going by her, but the lights from behind her are reflected in the rearview mirror and just highlight her eyes in this bright white. Everything else is gray fading to black around her. 
the stark color really this the brightness yeah. of it really is arresting the contrast is is so poignant and it's showing that she has this outlook that she thinks she's going for good she thinks that she is doing all of this for a good cause while being shrouded in a really dark dark reasoning behind it a really dark action mm -hmm. and it's not until she is forced to have to go to this this hotel in the light of day the following day that she kind of looks at herself and realizes she did something really awful she shouldn't have done it and decides you know what i have to turn around and go back but before she does that she steps into a shower where she's almost literally washing away her sins washing herself clean in this bright white tiled bathroom and then mrs bates comes and kills her <laughs> so the, big have... the big reveal the big reveal well, the big reveal is that it's not Mrs. Bates, but okay. Yeah, um, <laughs> I know. <laughs> but yeah, the fact that she is literally trying to rid herself of the the wrongdoing that she did in the shower, in this bright white shower, and the contrast of her being killed by this person in shadow. You don't see their face, and they're in dark colors. Is just, that's when the true evil takes her. And then from then on, the rest of the film is still experimenting between this light and this dark, this good and this evil. And it's so important that that film was done in black and white that when Gus Van Zant decided to make a colorized reboot in like the 90s, that it did not do as well as the original. It wasn't as impactful as the original because the colorized version is like, yeah, OK, we get it. It's a murder thing whatever yeah i genuinely don't remember that film but i've seen it because i remember being impressed with vince vaughn's acting in it mm -hmm. but i uh, and his characterizations but it had such a minimal impact compared to the original it was also a shot for shot remake mm -hmm. it's shot for shot they took the movie and copy pasted with different characters on a colored set They'd still, they used the same sets that they had. They, it was the same Bates Motel, same Bates House that are still around on, um, on those lots in California. So they still exist. But the fact that they were colorized instead of black and white removes so much of the impact from the light versus dark. It's just, it was very upsetting. And it makes it, it makes it less powerful. It's, it's just, it's just another crime drama. In the vast sea of crime dramas. You know, you know who did it. <laughs> you you know. know what's funny for me is when you think of Psycho, the first film that I think of is never the actual movie Psycho. It's always American Psycho. Ah, yeah, that's that's <laughs> happened a couple of times. I typed in Psycho and that was the first thing that came up in IMDb was American Psycho. I was like, no, the original. <laughs> I mean, that film also has a little bit of uh, similar a uh, fun thing with color more in its overall color palette being quite muted and dulled whenever it's from the perspective of Christian Bale's character because he's also muted so you know the the in world public. yes yeah. the the world just seems uh like it's coming through a sepia or gray lens of just everything's dulled and then blood 
blood is just vibrant and wonderful and red. Like the 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 demoralizing gray prison of a corporate America. Yes. Versus his passion for pain and torture. Ex- just explicit in that vibrant red blood. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. See, yeah. like those pops of color. You uh, with some Slumdog Millionaire. That's one of the other films that I I enjoyed uh, the symbolism for, and it's one of those things that makes me think about how in media a lot of the time they put like a, a foreign filter on stuff. Like oh, we're in yeah. India, make everything amber colored. Oh, we're in um, we're in Mexico. Everything has to be kind of yellowy toned. You know, they always have those different tints so then when you actually go to the country you're like oh it's not yellow that's interesting <laughs> but, i really wouldn't know i haven't been to any other countries but i believe you that the color of the world doesn't just change when you go to a different place <laughs> unless they have some severe pollution issues which let's face it some places do um no everything doesn't turn purple if you go to like africa Yes. Wow. That is a weird one. Um, and then it's not suddenly just magically gray over in like, it's always gray in, in London. And you're like, I mean, sometimes the weather's gray, but like, you don't look at the buildings and go, hmm, they're gray. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. But with Slumdog Millionaire, they have um, a very, I, I feel they did a very good job of showing the story, uh, the emotional story through this and their use of color, uh, particularly with the use of the color yellow, um, which my understanding of you know colors is with that it's often a color for gold, radiance. Um, uh, brides will be wearing it when they're going getting married. It has some religious significance, so they have like holy outfits, robes, and things that they'll wear. It's often associated with uh, turmeric, which is, you know, that wonderful... It's a spice, right? Yes, it is. Wonderful spice. I absolutely love coconut milk turmeric. It's a wonderful drink right there. But they they use that to go through with these flashbacks and the flash-forwards that whenever the main character, he's having those moments of you know, deep doubt and having challenges that he's coming up with when Jamal is trying to just get through things. And then often in relation to Latika, his, his love interest and, and, and one of the three musketeers, she will help bring, pull him through. She is the symbol of that, that hope. And at the very end, when you see her on the train station in the in the yellow outfit, it's like ah! You could actually hear the the you know choir singing in the background, and then all of a sudden it's you know dancing Bollywood. But um, that that one was more of a subtle nod that they had. But going back and doing rewatches, you see the tone, and then how that color keeps popping up whenever they have something good happen you're just like oh yellow yellow again more yellow it's also a very interesting thing because that movie was directed by danny boyle who is a british director um and the fact that he went from doing things like train spotting and 28 days later and did 
Slumdog Millionaire, a movie that is based solely in India, um, and still was able to capture some of the 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 Indian culture as it was in the experience. I thought that was very very powerful because um, you know British white man doing something in India. Uh, <laughs> let's not talk about the her- historical significance about that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. But the fact that he was still able to do something decent um, with it was really actually very cool. Yeah, I actually am realizing I don't have as much insight into how well received the movie was for people in, in India. India. Um, you know, I recall seeing some positive reviews and response um, in relation to the actors and kind of doing the interviews and such after the movie. Uh, but I don't know if it's continued to have a positive resonance in the culture because it is one of those areas where, like, I love a lot of films that are in you know, Bollywood. Um, and <laughs> one of my favorites, which is a, I, I can't think of it as being like a very good film necessarily, but it's one of my favorites, is Bride and Prejudice. Mm-hmm. Um, which is back in 2004 and another one with amazing colors and visuals and uses of f- beautiful flowers. But, uh, you know, I love those types of things. Um, and those are the ones that have made it to the U S and have become popularized and widely available, but the culture of their film and Bollywood is so rich and so deep and so over my head. <laughs> But I just am like barely scratching the surface with this one. Honestly, if you want to talk about um, really great um, Indian films that that have been well received in the U.S., there's a movie called Monsoon Wedding that I absolutely adore. Uh, and again, another movie with a fantastic soundtrack. Oh my god. I played that sucker. I played that soundtrack in college around my roommates who were looking at me going, what the fuck are you listening to? And I'm like, <laughs> it's amazing. Shut up. <laughs> like, I don't understand any of the words that they're saying in it, but it's good. <laughs> and, and it's such a fascinating thing from somebody from America to watch. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, this is you... getting off topic. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, have you, have you seen the movie The Best Exotic Marigold Hotel? I have not. That's like one of my guilty pleasures. And speaking of the difference between the UK and India, the the lives they live being basically just very gray and simple and, you know, calm colors and everything. And then they go to this like vibrant, loud, crowded, colorful, uh, spicy food place for retirement in India um, and seeing those differences and the way that it's throwing them out of their comfort zone. Um, the colors aren't as uh, symbolic as they are in some of the other films that we've talked about already. Uh, it's more just representing the culture and the clash of cultures. But the oh, muted, the muted English um, uh, colors versus the vibrant colors of India. Exactly, and yeah. it's and you can see it in like as some of the characters decide to really embrace their new lives, the things they're wearing start becoming more uh, comfortable and colorful and similar to those in India, and then those who are most resistant are continuing to wear their buttoned-up beiges and grays and and just be generally unpleasant. Uh, But it's, I 
absolutely love it. It's a great, great show. Yeah. Um, but this actually, with use of color in clothing, is actually a good point. The last thing that I think we should touch on today, um, I wanted to make Psycho the last moment, but I realized we skipped a few, <laughs> <laughs> um, is how, like we were saying, that colors show difference in, in locations around the world. Um, I wanted to bring up how colors show the difference in time periods. Oh, yeah. Now, most well-known, the modern day is, is colorized in fairly saturated bright colors. Um, depending on if you're telling a good story or a bad story, that is always key. And then the um, futuristic ones typically have the uh, teals and purples and neons that they like to put in there. Yes, but again, it depends on if you see the future as bright and hopeful or, or grim. bleak and depressing. That's true. Yep, so that's always a big thing. But if we're going into the past, um, what I wrote here is that um, the 1970s tends to be colored in a red or red-yellow, like a very, fairly that warm tone of the red-yellow. And I think that that is actually represented in like the old Kodak photos that when they faded, only the red and yellow tones were left because that's literally how film worked. The saturation and desaturation, all of the blues and purples would fade away and be left with like these reds and yellows. So a lot of films nowadays that are supposed to be aimed towards set in the 70s, 60s and 70s, they're all colorized to be like yellowish, orangish, reddish. Mm-hmm. So that always pertains that when you go back farther than that, um, let's say if you go to between uh, the 1850s and the 1940s, um, everything kind of turns like a sepia tint, like fairly brown, yep. reddish brown, um, which I think represents, again, the it, a lot of this has to do with photos. Um old photos and paintings yeah it's it's, it's how we interpret the past because that's all we are looking at and all we're able to recognize and so that we, we've like oh yeah that's how it is and you're like no that's just what technology captured and then what has happened after the passage of time when other things have faded away mm-hmm. um one of the biggest things that i thought was really cool is when i took one of those old-timey photos back in high school with some friends at an amusement park i think in virginia beach um Maybe. I don't remember. But we're taking a sepia tone picture, right? Mm-hmm. Except I'm wearing vibrant pink. My friend to my left is wearing this pastel blue. And my friend behind me, I think, was wearing like either a purple or a green, just something. Just We were wearing some very vibrant colors. But when you get the picture, it's all shades of brown. Yeah. And you're like, wow, you look at that and you have no idea what kind of colors existed in clothing. Um, unless you actually find the clothing. But anyway, that is something that I thought was always really fascinating. Between the 1850s and 1940s, the films are tended to be in a fairly brownish or in sometimes grayish um, coloring. Um, in the eras between the Industrial Revolution and the 1850s, 100% everything is tinged with gray. Um, and I think that has to do with tintypes and yeah. just the the overuse of industry and factory and cement and, and smoke and ugh, all of the stuff that comes from the industry. Um, and then when you go back further beyond the Industrial Revolution, suddenly everything becomes brighter again. 
Yes. And I think that's because everything is portrayed in painting. Before that is all done in these beautiful paintings that have been saved in, in museums and whatnot. So everything becomes brighter and more natural. All of the landscapes become greener. The flowers become more more popping of colors. Um, and it's really just, it's it's very interesting how when you're showing a film in a specific time period, that that coloring influences what time period you think it's set in. Exactly. It's so interesting. And the, the, the reality of things is like when you're pulling from like a painting or if you're pulling costume ideas from exigent garments, things that already are in existence that have survived to this point, you have a very limited view of what is there because the painting is dependent upon who was wealthy enough to have a painting, uh, which painting survived, were they taken care of? Many of them need to be restored and they're grimy and that makes everything darker and dingier. Clothing, the things that survived are often those that were not worn very often, were not uh, passed down to other generations, were not mm -hmm. resized or fitted for new fashions. And they often uh, lose their colors and fade over time. So our interpretation is like, it was this nice pale pastel pink when originally it was this vibrant magenta with like peacock oh. feathers. Like Barbie pink. Like, yes. hey, here I come in my Corvette. <laughs> right? Yeah. You, you see those things, but then you're like, oh, well, we couldn't imagine a world like that, which is part of why I love the, the uh, interpretation they had of Julia Quinn's Bridgerton books in the Netflix series with all oh, those God, cr so crazy colors, because that's reflective of what it's like. Or like the, the newer rendition of Emma also yep, just, I was just about to bring that one up yeah yeah of course i mean this the, the colors the richness that's what they wanted they wanted that that made them expensive that made them look unique and stand out and be fashion forward and no not everybody was wearing boring colors like i love the pride and prejudice regency periods and such and how they represent things and how edwardian outfits are shown uh but that's not all there was like what we have is black and white um, uh, prints or uh, was printmaking stuff. They have the, the, the cutouts, wood, wood cuts of what they used to look like. And you're like, this is what it was. And you're like, yeah, but that's, that's just an outline that doesn't tell you anything. <laughs> yeah. Just looking at old patterns from um, magazines, like, uh, like sewing magazines from the 1950s, the forties, mm -hmm. um, because let me tell you, my mother sewed up a storm mm -hmm. um, back in the day. She, because during those times, um, you were taught to sew because clothes weren't readily available in just a standard range of sizes. You had to make it yourself or you had to buy it and then tailor it to your size. People don't do that anymore unless you got money to actually go and get somebody to do it for you. But back in the day... Like my mother had outfits that she that she had an outfit that was stolen from her in school. And the only reason she got to prove that the person was wearing her clothing was because she sewed a label in that had her name <laughs> on it. And she's like, look, she's wearing it. It says a Carol Lynn design. And I thought that was just like, that's that's something that we don't do anymore. Mm -hmm. Why why is that not a thing? But yeah, like the 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 patterns that are still around they they were 
the the patterns you look at the the magazines again color fades um the the paper um wrappings that the patterns on this very flimsy paper came in like those the colors on them fade Mm -hmm. so what you think is like this kind of orangey weird color was actually like a vibrant red or may have even been like a maroon but because of so much time has passed and you don't know if it was kept in a window where it's gotten sun damage all of this stuff factors into um what we perceive is what the past used to look like and what it actually looked like but we also have to keep in mind that that's what the audience's perspective is so even if we correct it and we do do what is historically accurate they may be like really confused and yeah fight Mm -hmm. against it and they're like well so is this like a are they doing reenactments you're like no this is supposed to be real and they're like well that's not what i know so that's part of the the balancing act that has to be done to uh, keep things within their expectation, but also, you know, accurate enough that it's faithful to the story. Indeed. I wanted to touch on how to talk to girls at parties um, and the use of color in that, but I think we've been going on for a little over an hour at this point. (laughs) We have been going, we've been talking all day so far. Yes. Yes. I need, I need to, Go and do other things because, you know, adulting. Like, what is that bullshit? Yeah, I need to eat at some point today. Oh, good Lord. Um, You haven't eaten all day. Yeah. But I mean, it's still this is actually this is a fantastic episode one. This is this is kind of the stuff that we want to go into, how interpretations are important, um, how intentions are important and how the storytelling through certain aspects is something that we can always dig deeper into and it's going to be so much fun to cover all of this. Stuff. I'm just oh so thankful that you guys are going to be able to join us along this journey as we learn how to yes. communicate our ideas better, be better prepared, have examples and yeah, when have we... things that work. <laughs> <laughs> and when we're actually able to get these things moving, I'm anticipating us putting screenshots or something to really drive the the ideas home and and give you those ideas so people can really see what we're talking about yeah this it would be great for us to actually be able to release this on um it's mostly going to be a podcast format but eventually uh, we could have like a um a youtube uh channel that just allows us for the the screenshots of certain things whether it be scenes from the movies that we talk about um specific uh like when we're talking about tin types and woodcuts having examples of that up there as well that'd be fantastic for us to have we do Mm -hmm. really want to make this something that is inclusive to all um we want to make it so that it is entertaining and it's not just something that you listen to in the background while you wash your dishes and don't really pay attention to but i mean you can do that too (laughs) like yeah i'm not gonna judge no shade no shade in men i i I literally am not trying to throw any shade (laughs) but i i personally uh like to make something that you want to listen to but there are a few youtube videos podcasts things like that where like if i'm in the right mindset and i just need to sleep i put that on even if i'm really interested in the topic i am out like a light so if our voices could do that for you (laughs) you are welcome to listen I mean, I, I hope that some of our episodes are soothing, but I guarantee there's going to be moments where I'm suddenly screaming and yelling and laughing uncontrollably. <laughs> so I apologize for waking you up in advance. <laughs> oh, I love that. Uh, well, this has been 
fun as always. I look forward to our next topic. We're going to have to roll the dice to figure out what we're chatting about. Yes, oh, all of the dice because yeah. there's so many topics. There's oh my so goodness. Many ideas. <laughs> oh, but that is a good problem to have. So I guess we'll yes. let you guys go. But thank you for joining us in this inaugural voyage of the Chronic Media Consumption Podcast. As, as we said in the beginning, my name is Michelle. I am Kelly. And we'll see you next time. Thank you again. Bye-bye. <laughs>